All right, everybody, if you have your Bible with you, can you turn with us to Colossians chapter 1? The plan tonight is to cover the tail end of chapter 1 and the first five verses of chapter 2. So it's 124 through 25. All right, Scott, you want to read the passage for us? And, um, and could you pray and then starting with being joyful in suffering, uh, especially as it um, relates to, to ministry. Really, really interesting passage. Yeah, okay. Let's, let's read from Colossians 1, starting in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ." Let's just pray together briefly. Heavenly Father, once again, we're, we're thankful for these nights, these Thursday nights where we can gather in the gym and uh, we can have a meal together. And uh, we're just thankful for all the work that goes on behind the scenes to make this night possible, to run smoothly. And we're thankful for this chance to open up your word and to study this rich passage of Scripture in Colossians 1 and the beginning of Colossians 2. And Father, as, as we think about Paul, who had such a deep concern to see people growing in Christ's likeness, he toiled for this with all of your energy that you powerfully work within him. I pray that we would leave tonight uh, with a deeper desire to see people grow in Christ-likeness, that we really would have a genuine pastoral concern for people in the church, that we, we would want to see people growing in the faith, uh, that we'd be passionate about this, and we would rely on your grace and strength as we do this. And uh, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Greg, could you kind of introduce this passage? It is phenomenal. Yeah, introduce this passage. Wow. Yeah. Um, well, in, in kind of a general sense, um, Paul is going to talk a lot about his sufferings for the sake of the church and the struggle that he goes through uh, to ensure that believers uh, reach maturity in Christ. Like, If you wanted to kind of hit two major themes, it's suffering to build up the church and then constantly struggling and laboring to uh, see the church mature in Christ um, because everything the church needs to grow is in him. Keep in mind, there's a false teaching that this church is combating. Um, there's, you know, some, some false doctrine that, that's creeping in, trying to take these believers away from Christ to other things for their sufficiency. And so Paul is going to labor uh, in this, through this letter to help the Colossians find everything they need in Christ. Um, and again, we'll see some of that as we go through it. But it, through uh, the end of, of uh, chapter 1, um, he's talking about suffering for the body, um, struggling for their maturity. And then you look in chapter 2, 
and he talks about reaching all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Um, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of wisdom and knowledge out there from the world. Uh, false teachers claim to be wise. They claim to have new knowledge um, that, they, that the people of God need that, that's not been given through the apostles, that's not been laid down in Scripture, that's outside of Christ. And Paul wants us to hear loud and clear uh, we're, we're saved through Christ. We mature in Christ. Everything we need is in Christ. So contrary to the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all, is there's definitely going to be suffering yep. in the midst of the life of the believer and especially in ministry. Yeah. You had COVID I back did. in the day. What? Tell us about your, oh, your take. Not necessarily on COVID, but on the, <laughs> it's kind of this suffering. Now, I know here we're talking, though, probably this suffering, and Paul had suffering of all shapes and sizes, but especially in ministry, there wasn't anything easy about Paul's ministry if you talk suffering. Yeah, I think that, and man, anytime anybody talks about suffering, you feel like you don't know what you're talking about in terms of how to actually live this out and do this well. But at least from this text, it's very clear that the way to deal with suffering the right way and to even put the word joy with the word suffering. I, look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So just stop there. How in the world? I mean, we know James 1, right? To count it all joy when we face various trials. Uh, in Romans 5, similarly, that we glory in our tribulations and our, and our difficulties. How in the world, seriously, do you have rejoicing alongside suffering? It's one thing to say it, to put it on like a little placard and have, this is my, you know, it's my life verse, but how do you actually in day-to-day -day life do that? And the answer is, listen, the answer is doctrinal, theological. I have to know the reason biblically for my sufferings in God's purposes for my life in order to have joy in my sufferings. Paul is not talking about some kind of uh, love for pain. He's not saying pain is enjoyable. I, I like suffering in and of itself. He's not saying that. Paul's not about that kind of thing. What he's saying is my sufferings have a purpose. And the purpose of my sufferings from God is for good. It's for my personal good. And then here in this text, it's for the good of others. It's for building up the body of Christ. It's for helping other people know the gospel and see what they need to see in Christ. And because my sufferings serve the good of other people, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Because my sufferings are doing something good for you, I can find joy, not in my suffering in and of itself, but what my suffering and God's purposes is doing for someone else and for, for me, for building me up. And so th this is where doctrine is for life. Theology is for practice. It is for living. Because if, I don't, if, if, I, if, if my theology is this, I'm going to give a caricature. This is kind of an exaggerated view of someone's theology. I don't know if people actually talk like this, but here's a, a caricature. When good things happen in my life, what I consider good things, that's God. So we call it a God thing when pleasant things happen coincidentally, right? We're like, oh, it was a God thing. We were looking for a ride at the airport, and my cousin happened to be there, and he gave us a ride home. It was a, it was a total God thing. Well, sure, that, that's, God is certainly sovereign. But when we go through negative times, someone might say, well, Satan was getting the upper hand. Satan was getting the victory over God that day. Now, people don't normally say it that strongly, but it's like when, when we think good things happen, God's behind it. When unpleasant things happen, Satan's winning. That's bad theology, but it's not just bad doctrine. It's also going to hurt you when you're suffering mm -hmm. because you're actually going to think Satan is triumphing and God has got his hands tied in some way and he doesn't know it was going to happen or he didn't know how to fix it. But if you believe that God is actually sovereign over your sufferings, mm 
as well as your more pleasant moments, and we know that there's a theology underneath that, that actually gives us confidence to know this is not in vain. Like, your suffering is not pointless. It's not in vain. It may not, we may not be able to square the circle, right? There's, there's, it's like we're looking at a puzzle and most of the pieces are missing from our vantage point. We can't see the whole picture. God does. He sees the whole picture of the purpose of our sufferings and how they're going to be used for your good and for other people's good in many different ways that we don't realize and for his glory. And we have to trust God when we can't understand what he's doing. I think Spurgeon said we trust his heart when we cannot trace his hand. I don't fully understand what he's up to, but I've got to trust that God has a good purpose. That is what gives us fuel for joy. So it's trusting the goodness of God in the sovereignty of God in the midst of trip trouble. That, that's what is, is the cause for Paul's joy. And it seems like he has such a freedom. I love that, Mark. Such a freedom of just self-forgetfulness. He has great joy because he's not worried about himself. If he was just concerned about himself, then his trials would be driving him crazy. He's concerned about everybody else. If they're growing because of my trials, then good deal. Scott. Well, Jerry, before you push it to me, I mean, you not to undermine Mark's suffering that he went through, but you're the guy in the wheelchair that just threw it to Mark to talk about his immense uh, suffering. So I, I have a follow-up question for Mark, is what I have. <laughs> okay. Well, I just want to push back to you a little bit. I mean, you've suffered a, a great deal. Just talk maybe some about the goodness of God through your suffering, maybe a little bit. I mean, you've talked about this before, but just give us a flavor. I think of Mark's thought on that, Romans 8.28 is huge, that you got to trust, you have to believe, because it's true, that it really is going to work together for good for our growth and our sanctification, but for God's glory. And then he doesn't take long to get to three. If you turn over a page, chapter three, one to four, if you have been raised with Christ, think the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you'll also appear with him in glory. And so I love the thought and I think it's because Paul operated with this in mind, setting his mind on things that were above, setting his affections, his heart on things that were above, then all of a sudden he can say, my light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what's seen, but on what's unseen. What's seen is temporary, what's unseen is eternal. And he lived with such a mindset like this that... Um, I believe really helps one not just persevere through sufferings. I think that's what I was convicted by, by this. We're not at the end of the day. Nobody should get a gold star on your little Sunday school deal for just pers for persevering and like, wow, I just made it. The command here, what Paul is able to do is to rejoice in sufferings. And so I don't think the idea is just to make it here. That we would be cutting, we would be way selling the Lord short if that's all our goal was. He will give you joy in the midst of deep suffering because it is not about you. It is about sanctification. It's about the sanctification of others. And it's about your own growing in Christ, becoming more like him. And so it's a thrilling thing to see what the challenge is, and know that God's not just commanding us to do something that he's not going to give us the ability to do. And so there's all of these great pre precious promises that we just have to, um, to bank on and believe, and then he certainly is faithful. Well, I think, too, in light of that, what Paul's saying here in 24 and 25 is 
we, we know the necessity of preaching for the church to be built, but Paul's also talking about the necessity of suffering. Um, and I think we, we need to keep both of those in mind. Yes, the gospel um, is what God uses, and the word is what God uses to build his people through the spirit. He uses the word, but oftentimes that word becomes a more powerful reality in our own experience through our sufferings. Um, it doesn't change the nature of the word, but our suffering takes us to a point to where we see the reality of what God's saying in a way we wouldn't see it otherwise. Um, and I think too, looking at 24 and 25, the goal here especially is um, to build the church. Because what does he say? Look again. He says, in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church which I became, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me to make the word of God fully known. And so as we share the word of God, God is going to bring suffering in various ways and for various seasons um, as a means of using you and using me to help build up the church. Suffering goes along with preaching. Now, not like you said, not all of us are going to suffer in the same way, um, but suffering... Uh, is just something we should expect and not be surprised by. Uh, if we're surprised by it, we're not thinking biblically. Um, but what, what is one of the things that suffering does, especially when it comes to preaching the gospel? Because Paul makes a statement here that has caused no end of controversy, no end of angst, um, especially for Christians who we rightly, I think, believe from Scripture that Christ's death is fully sufficient in every way for our salvation. You can't add to it. Uh, if you try to take away from it, you're diminishing it. Um, Christ and Christ alone has everything that we need. And so Paul says here, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's a, I mean, if we're not careful, we could really go off the rails with a statement like this. Mark, what do you have yeah. to say on that? So, the, the, as you know, the Catholic Church, I think in the 1300s, used this verse to, to argue for the treasury of merits where saints uh, attribute, basically they contribute to Christ's righteousness and you add your own righteousness to it and there's a treasury of merit to get people out of purgatory. Yeah, that's not, that's not what Paul's talking about here, not at all. Um, Paul, obviously, the whole point of this letter is that Jesus alone is sufficient. That's the whole point of Colossians. You don't need anything plus Jesus. Just Jesus alone is all you need. So he would not contradict his whole point of his letter and his whole ministry by saying, by the way, let me finish the atonement by my own sufferings. That's not what Paul's saying. So what does he mean? I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction by my, my sufferings. Turn maybe just one or so pages to the left to Philippians 2. The reason to turn here is there's two Greek words that are virtually identical. They're, they're extraordinarily similar. They're uh, almost identical two words that are used again by Paul in Philippians 2. Now, as you turn there, do you remember Epaphroditus from Philippians? Paul is 800 miles away from Philippi in a Roman house arrest in, in prison. And the Philippians care for Paul. They want to provide his physical needs. Do you remember this? And they send one of their own, a guy that they trust, Epaphroditus, who takes money and whatever offering of love for Paul. He travels hundreds of miles with money, which is super risky at that time and place because you could get mugged and like, you know, on the road to Jericho kind of thing. You could be in trouble. He, he risks his life, takes the money hundreds of miles, gets to Paul and delivers this, this love offering to Paul from the Philippians. Now, Paul uses almost the same language. Look at, look at uh, verse, uh, verse 28. So Paul's talking about Epaphroditus, I am the more eager to send him, in other words, back home, therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again, 
and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to, look, complete what was lacking in your service towards me. That's almost the same Greek language, Greek words as saying, Paul is filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Now, do you hear it? He was completing what was lacking in your service towards me. Do you hear how similar the language is? Filling up what's lacking, completing what is lacking. Okay, in the context, think about this, was anything lacking regarding the Philippians' love for Paul? No. Was anything lacking in the fact that they wanted to give money to Paul? No, they gave the money that they gave. What was lacking was someone actually bringing it to Paul physically. That's what was lacking, right? So the Philippians, were, they had all the love for Paul you could imagine, and they, they wanted to give this money, but what was lacking was someone to take it and deliver it, right? Paul is saying, listen, Jesus died for you. His atonement is totally sufficient for all that you need. But Jesus is not physically here on earth, but his missionaries are, his evangelists are, we, his body are, right? And so when we take the gospel to someone, we are bringing that message of Christ, we're filling up what's lacking. Nothing was lacking in Christ, but he's not here physically. We are. His body is here. And so we are filling in that gap. The Lord is empowering us to bring the message to to someone else. And as we do so, just like Epaphroditus, suffering is going to happen. And that suffering also, I don't know if Paul's saying this here or not, but the suffering we endure to give the gospel is in some way demonstrating a little picture of what Christ himself suffered, right? Like when we forgive... They're seeing something of the forgiveness of Jesus in us. When we suffer for the gospel and we're insulted for the gospel, are they seeing a little glimpse of what Jesus went through? A little glimpse, right? It's not nearly as significant, but we can embody to small degrees the love, the forgiveness, even the suffering, sacrificial love that that, that Jesus wants us to do. We, We can show that by the way that we live and also by the words that we say. Good, Scott. Yeah, and you could tell different missionary stories about this. Uh, I know Piper talks about one, but one, I, I was thinking about David Brainerd, which I've mentioned many times before. He died at 29, suffered greatly. Uh, we wouldn't even know about his life if Jonathan Edwards wouldn't have post- published his, uh, the life of David Brainerd. It was the most popular work that Jonathan Edwards ever published was this uh, life of, of David Brainerd. But David Brainerd went to these Native American Indian tribes for four years, but he suffered immensely. And there, there was a lady, I think it's the first convert that he ever had, was a lady who had been mistreated by white people. And she said that she could basically never love white people. And here comes a white man, David Brainerd, this godly man, frail, weak, and just suffering. And she watched him suffer, like going to great lengths to bring the gospel to them. I mean, he would have tuberculosis, he's spitting up blood, he would sleep on the ground, he hardly ate any. I mean, it's just what he went through out of love for, for these Indians. In his 20s. In his 20s. He's just in his 20s, but he had tuberculosis young, and it w- would kill him at 29. So he, she saw him suffering so much, and then I think she began to warm to, to Brainerd, which ended up making her listen to the gospel from this man must love us if he's willing to suffer this much. And then she ended up becoming the first convert. And then it said that she would do anything for Brainerd. It's just a picture of, of what Paul's getting at here. David Brainerd, in that sense, was filling up what was lacking. He, he was providing the suffering for this woman who, who couldn't love white people. And there, there was Brainerd doing, doing it in action. That's great. Greg, can you take us on there from 25? Yeah. Um, let's look then at uh, the last part of verse 25 and verses 26 and 27. So he talks about that Paul that he was given a stewardship from God, uh, and that stewardship was to do what? To make the word of God fully known. And what is it that he's making known? This is huge here. This is what he's making known, verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, 
which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, we all know, you know, the, the, the word Christ is simply the Greek term for Messiah. It's the Greek term for Messiah. So when you see Christ, think Messiah, okay? And we know that the, the Old Testament promises of Messiah were for, you know, ruling the world, bringing salvation, restoring God's people. All these blessings that God had in store were going to come through his anointed one, his Messiah, his Christ, okay? And so feel the significance of this. This mystery is that God had the riches of his glory that from, an, from the Old Testament, we know it was um, focused on the Jews, but there was this promise through Abraham of the world coming in one day. And so now in Christ, that blessing has come. The riches of the glory of God, the, all the, the gifts of salvation, the blessings and everything, God has now made known to the Gentiles what he had promised to give through the Messiah. And so the Messiah, Christ, was not just for the Jews. He was for the Gentiles too. And Gentiles fully share in him and all the blessings and spiritual gifts um, and spiritual joys and experiences that God had for his people. Gentiles are part of that too. Um, Let me just make a comment here. If you look at verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, uh, the, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's interesting. The New Testament very rarely speaks about Christ being in you. That's the way evangelicals normally talk, you know, asking Jesus into your life and Jesus living in you. And there's nothing wrong with speaking of Christ living in you. It's biblical. That's true. Do you know far more often the Bible speaks of us being in Christ? Hmm. And I, I, Christians rarely speak that way. I am, I am in Christ or Christ has brought me into himself. I think we need to, to adjust our language here. We should speak about Christ being in us by God's amazing grace. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. The, the third person of the Trinity bringing Christ near to us within us. That is astonishing truth. But at the same time, no less astonishing, our life is hidden with Christ in God. We are in Christ at the same time. He is our righteousness. He is our status. He is all that we need is is in him. So let's not lose either side of that. He's within us, but we are also uh, in Christ. That mystery, help us with that, because we see it in, and Greg, I'm sure touched on it there, 26, 27, um, we're in chapter 2, early on, verse 2. Explain the mystery just so we get this right. So, okay, 26 gives you a good way to think about this word mystery in the New Testament, verse 26. The mystery, now look, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. That's almost a, just the Bible giving you the definition of what mystery means. It's something that was hidden in the past. It was not fully or clearly known in the, in, in the Old Testament times. But once Christ came, new light was shed, and now what was once partially hidden is now clearly revealed. In other words, so many of the things of the gospel that we take for granted as Christians on this side of the cross were not clearly known by Old Testament saints in the way that we know them clearly now. And one you mentioned was that Gentiles and Jews are equal in Christ. That was not something that was fully understood in the Old Testament times. That is a mystery now revealed in Christ. It's an astonishing thing since most of us in this room are Gentiles by birth. And so the fact that we share equally in the promises of Christ in him uh, is, is, is an astonishing truth. It was partly understood in the Old Testament. Now it is fully revealed in the New Testament. Good, Scott. Yeah, I think uh, Sinclair Ferguson talked about this text. I think he was a new Christian and he heard somebody preach on it for the first time and it was like the reality of the wonder of this Christ in you, the hope of glory. He'd never thought of it before. And Sinclair Ferguson apparently is an introvert. He was very much an introvert at 16. And he said, 
As he was going home, he looked around, I think, to make sure no one was looking. And he said he skipped down the street with joy. Like, how could this be? Of little me, Christ in youth. And he just was on air as he went home. And I think I love stories like that to remind us. We, we are so comfortable with the language of Christianity. We just, assume, oh yeah, in Christ, in Christ. But you need a story like that of Ferguson to say, wake up to the wonder of this reality that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. I mean, yeah, just an amazing uh, verse right there that we can't, you don't want to just rush past. I, that's huge, because if you go back, couldn't we really almost say, Ministry really isn't ministry if we're doing it grumbly or if we're doing it with, um, without joy. Paul ministered with joy. He rejoiced in his sufferings because it was ministry to others. And I think that's a good challenge for us. Whatever our ministry is, if our ministry is being a plumber, if our ministry is um, raising kids at home, if our ministry is being a godly husband or wife, we do that with joy. And I was really convicted too about the end of 25 then, just kind of summing mm -hmm. up here, that what's our job? To make the word of God fully known. To make, from God was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Let's do that. Let's make the word of God fully known. And he's going to flesh that out for sure in Colossians Two, um, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on 28 and 29, especially this struggling with all his energy. Yeah, let me, let me read that. Verse 28, him, so Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So, We've got to not make Paul into Superman. We tend to just think Paul could just do it all. Paul couldn't do anything. Paul would be the first to say, I can do nothing apart from Christ. So Paul says, listen, me left to myself, I've got no energy working within me, and I'm not going to be doing any toiling. There's no, nothing is going to happen in my life if Christ is not working within me powerfully. Paul was as reliant on God and as needy on the Lord's strength as you are and as I am. He was not Superman. He didn't just have inherently within him the, the inner strength to pull himself up by the bootstraps and just make things happen. That's not true. Paul was relying on the energy that Christ was working within him. And let's be honest, the, the main way that happens is through the means of grace. That's why Paul's always talking about prayer, and he's talking about meditating on Scripture, and he's talking about these things, being around the saints, because we need the means of grace as habits that are part of our daily life to get that strength from the Lord renewed. Like, I mean, my goodness. Try to go 24 hours without eating food. You feel incredibly weak. Go more than 24 hours. You feel sick. You feel awful without food because you need energy from outside of you to strengthen you for your daily task. Jesus is the bread of life. He's the water of life. If we don't rely on him on a daily basis for renewed, refreshed strength, we are going to spiritually collapse. We are going to have nothing left within us. And so Paul says, listen, I'm not Superman. I am toiling I'm struggling. In one place, he says, I worked harder than any of the apostles. That's working hard, 1 Corinthians 15. But he says, it wasn't I, but the grace of God that was with me, in me. Paul says, I'm working really hard here, but it's not me. It's the grace of God within me. And I, I think I heard Spurgeon, they, you know, if you're, if you're aware of how much Spurgeon printed, I think he has more printed works in the English language than maybe anybody. It's some crazy amount. If you've seen the volumes, my, my uncle, my, my, my mom's brother, David, who's passed away, he's in heaven now, but he had all of Spurgeon's sermons in black hardcover books. They covered an enormous amount of territory in his office. It was unbelievable. And that was just his printed sermons. He wrote all kinds of other books. 
Someone said to Spurgeon, who died in his 50s, how in the world do you do all that you do? And I, his answer, and I think he was referring to this verse, he says, you have to understand there are two of us. <laughs> and I think that's what he meant. I think he was talking about, Good. there is me who's kind of helpless. And then there's, it's like, I'm a broken kite. And then there's the hurricane, mm. right? I, it's not me. It's, it's him. I need his strength in order to get through any day with integrity or any day doing what God wants or rejoicing. Without him, we can do nothing. But Paul will say in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And that's how he can rejoice in his sufferings, knowing that when he's weak, he's strong because it brings out Christ's strength. Scott? Yeah, I think John Newton just said, pray earnestly for a deep sense of your own insufficiency. I mean, it's just so true. We need to have this deep sense of our own insufficiency. I mean, I am insufficient to share the gospel with this person. I am insufficient to lead this Bible study. I am insufficient to discipline my son appropriately. I want to have this deep sense of my own insufficiency, but then we want to have a, I would say, add deep uh, sense of Christ's sufficiency. He is able to help in time of need. He, he gives grace and strength. So uh, J.I. Packer has this great quote that some of us have read in one of his books. He talks about this idea of uh, dependent responsibility, basically, which is Jerry Bridges' term. But uh, Packer says, when a, when a new act of obedience is called for, he said, first take it to God in prayer, acknowledging your own lack of strength for it and asking to be enabled from on high. Then he says, then go into action, expecting to be helped, and you will find that you are then thank God for the help you received. It is by this pattern of humble, dependent activity that we shall grow in grace. It was just such a great quote. I mean, I can't do this on my own. Ask for strength, and then you get up and go into action, expecting God's going to help you. And when God does help you, share the gospel or to discipline yourself. And then you give thanks. I mean, just, just a great pattern to just start to do this in our lives where we are insufficient, but Christ is sufficient. He will help us, and, and it helps cultivate thanksgiving, I think, too. Yeah, how about the struggling? Because that's the thing. We know that, I think, in our minds that Christ is going to... But get up and to go into action. Sometimes we can be a little lazy about that. Greg, how about struggling? Because that's really the word means to agonize, right? Paul was unbelievable in the way he would agonize over ministry. Well, I'm afraid we may stop short of that. Well, I think it's helpful, too, um, thinking of that. Um, you know, I love being a dad. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world but any of you who are parents know that there are agonizing moments raising your kids. Uh, it's part of the process of bringing them to maturity and adulthood um, and seeing them able to, you know, be independent and go live life on their own and make good decisions. Um, and so it's not a perfect analogy to what we're talking about, but parents struggle. Um, and the struggle, you know, it, it works in this. The struggle is real. Um, the struggle is real to, to raise your kids right, to to be consistent in leading them, to be consistent in pointing them to Jesus, to be consistent in giving them the tools and the skills and everything they need to succeed in the world. And that's somewhat of an analogy for this. Um, maturity for all of us takes continual effort and energy. Like that's why we have to continually be in the word. That's why we have to continually be in the word individually, corporately, why we need to talk with one another, pray with one another, encourage one another. Paul says in 28, not just teaching, but warning. We need warning from one another. Um, the same way we warn children, hey, don't do this. It's bad. Oh, you're doing it. It's going to be even worse. Oh, see, you hurt yourself here. It's, it's, we need warning as well in the church um, because God uses warning against sin, warning um, against, you know, false teaching and all of that, like that's part of the maturing process. And we never reach a point where we don't need that anymore. Like children grow up and, you know, are able to, to do that. But in, in terms of what Paul's saying, 
Our, our being presented mature in Christ is going to be on the last day. Like, I think that's what he has in mind, not at some point in the Christian life. Okay, you're now mature. You don't have any more growth to take place in your life. That's not what Paul's talking about. So we are constantly laboring to, to teach the word, to warn and lie to the word, to admonish one another, encourage one another. And it is a struggle. It's something sometimes we're not going to feel like it. I mean, we all know we have those days. Sometimes we have seasons. We don't want to get out of bed. We don't want to have to have that conversation. We don't want to have to read the word. We don't want to have to talk to that person. And Paul says, and I think that's where, where what you guys are saying is so crucial, is we can't keep this up in our own strength. Like, I love what's going on here. Like, this is amazing. The, the, the atmosphere that we have at North Avenue for gathering and fellowshipping and teaching the word. But there's going to be times, if we're honest, where we don't want to do it. You know, even in this church, like there's times I don't want to come on Sunday. I want to take a nap because I'm tired. Okay. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels that. But why do we keep doing it? Because that's how I help you mature. That's how you help me mature is by struggling. Okay, I don't want to, I really want to do something else, but I'm going to be here because this is how I grow and this is how you grow. And jump, jumping off that point, I, I mean, I really do think if you're struggling spiritually, you feel like you're spiritually dry, you, you can't really seem to get your footing right now, if that's the way it's felt for a period of time, the best thing in my experience, and I think this is biblical, the best thing for a spiritual um, dryness is seeing your desperation and seeing your weakness and completely owning it and using that as the fuel in your time alone with the Lord. I mean, my best quiet times come when I feel like I've got nothing left in the tank. I, I feel like I am about to tap out. I have no strength, no energy, no joy. Lord, what can you do with me? Please help me. The, the, when I'm just falling into the Lord's arms, really, when, when I'm going to him saying, God, help me, those are, those are the best. When, when I come in with a little bit of a, I kind of got this attitude, that is, that is the kind of spiritual pride that goes nowhere. It, it just goes nowhere. So take your desperation, your feeling of emptiness, and plead it before the Lord. Go to the Lord and say, Lord, Paul's talking about this energy powerfully working within him. Lord, I, I don't have much of that going on right now. Lord, please fill me with that energy. Give me that motivation. Give me that love because apart from you, uh, I, I'm, help, I'm lost. I, I can do nothing. I want to say one more thing on that. I think we've touched on this before. When it comes to saying, okay, we know God's got the energy. He's got the power for us. We don't sit around and wait until we feel empowered. Because if we wait until we feel a certain way, we'll never get up and do anything. Mm -hmm. We trust God's promise that he said he will give us strength, that he will energize us. So we take steps of obedience, trusting God's going to empower those steps as we take them. Don't wait around till you feel like it because you'll never get up and do anything. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. The least three goals here of the church in uh, verses one to five is that our hearts would be encouraged that we would be united in love, and these are just great, and that we would be settled in understanding. Scott, you want to kind of help us there, start us? Can I, in... can I just go back real quick to, to the to verse 28 about proclaiming Jesus? Just, just gotta, I got to just say this, that uh, for Paul, like Jesus had, had literally saved Paul's life, and now Paul wants to proclaim the one who's done so much for him. And I just think for all of us as Christians, we should want to talk about the person and work of Jesus. I mean, this should be natural. It should overflow from us. And one writer just said, the chief task of distinctive Christian leadership is laboring to get clear and affecting views of the splendor of Christ before others as often as possible. I mean, it, no matter what you're leading, even the smallest group, you want to get labor to get clear and affecting views of Christ before the people. That's just how people are, are strengthened. 
and built up. And I, it is such a joy to get up in front of people at North Ave, get up in front of you guys who, who love Jesus. And I can visibly see people being affected by the gospel. You're lifting up some aspect of Christ. The glory of Christ is being upheld. And you can see, you can, I can literally see people awakening again to, to the wonder of what Christ has done for them. And so we just want to be about the personal work of Jesus. And this is how we're going to help each other grow in Christ's likeness. So much could be said on 20. I just love 28 and 29. So I just, just want to miss that part. And then maybe Mark can take two, one to, one to five stars out on that. Okay. Yeah. Chapter two, verse one, <clears throat> for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So again, chapter 2, verse 1, Paul's talking about the Colossians and the Laodiceans. Remember these two churches that Epaphras planted that were near each other? And Paul has never been here. He does not know these people. And yet he says he is greatly struggling for them that their hearts would be encouraged, that their love would grow, and that they would have rich assurance of, uh, uh, of understanding. Th- this is an incredible model of the kind of love for others that Paul has not seen them face to face, yet he's praying for them, he's struggling on their behalf, and he's concerned for, for them. Yeah, which, which was the beginning where it talks about him struggling. Some people think it may be prayer that, that he's talking about because Epaphras, I guess, in, in chapter 4, same kind of language. And I think it was Piper who said that here he is in prison and somebody maybe brings uh, Paul food and he just pushes that food aside and says, I'm going to fast and pray for, for these believers. I, I want them to grow. I mean, just such, I mean, do we do that? He's doing it for people he's never met, most of them he's never met. Paul just has such a concern for the spiritual well-being of, of these people. And uh, I, I just thought about David in Psalm 142, verse 4, he says, no one cares for my soul. I remember my dad said that the guy who first discipled him with the navs took my dad to that verse and pointed it to him. He said, you can never say that that's true of you because, you know, I care for your soul. And if you have people like that in your life, I've thought about you. You have that guy that you can call like anytime who, who cares for your soul. We have people in this church who genuinely care for our souls. I mean, how grateful we should be that we have people who genuinely are concerned that we are growing in Christ-likeness and concerned for our souls. We should just be rich with gratitude for those people. And they're encouraging. You know, when you see that, that their hearts would be encouraged and, and it's mutual. You remember in Romans 1 where there, we could be a mutual encouragement to each other. I think that, that happens in ministry. And certainly I would feel like these guys being around any one of you is mutually encouraging, is encouraging to me. And, and um, because, again, what Scott pointed back to their love, to your love for the, the Lord Jesus and that when we can... We can talk about him. He is the centerpiece of all that goes on in Colossians and in our own life and we're to make him known and know him. I think it's significant drawing someone on what you guys have been saying that this assurance that they, they arrived, that Paul wants them to arrive at is only reached together. So like our ability to have assurance in the Christian life is going to be massively hindered if we're not regularly a part of the body of Christ. Because look again at the language. He says, being knit together in love. Their hearts, so he's talking about the Colossian church, their hearts knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance. Assurance, maybe we could say is impossible if we're neglecting the local church. And I mean, obviously you guys are here, you're not neglecting anything, but let it just be an exhortation um, to you that if you're struggling with assurance, get around other Christians. I mean, some, one of the biggest ways I'm encouraged is when I get around other people who are walking with Jesus. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the biggest ways you'll be encouraged. If you're struggling, just knowing that you've got people who will sit and listen and pray and encourage and know they're going to keep praying and then talk with you and share scripture with you. Like we have to have that if we're going to be assured in our faith and assured of our standing in Christ and, and all that. Um, and it is just hard to have that if we're on our own. Yeah, it's kind of like if, if, you're, if you've been driving your car for a long time, you know, your alignment gets off, you let go of the steering wheel, and suddenly it's pulling right, and you're like, what is going on here? This is pulling pretty far to the right here. And so you have to go back and get your tires realigned. It's almost like the Christian community is an alignment for your soul every single day, every single week, where, where I start believing things that are not actually true about myself, about God, about others, about sin, about righteousness. I start believing things that are not true, genuinely, and my alignment goes off. Suddenly, I'm a little off course, and what happens? Someone in the room says something that's true and helpful and biblical, and it course corrects my heart. It, it realigns the, the, my soul, and I go, oh, you're right. What was I, that's a, what was I thinking? I was, I was in a complaining mood, and I hear a statement. I'm like, okay, that's exactly right. I should have that attitude. We, we need those constantly, and it's, it, it's a mutual thing that goes all, uh, all around in every direction. Scott, help us with this being knit together in love. I like the, the questions that you made for us that we're going to get to talk about. What, how does that work in a church, you think, in our church or in the church in general? Yeah, I mean, I think... I mean, my question has to do with like if you're, which I got it from a pastor who said like if you're on the fringes of the church, basically if you're only attending the one service infrequently, basically he was basically saying you're not going to be knit together in love with, with the people that you're a part of at that church. So I think you have to, as Greg is saying, you have to get involved with the people of God. I mean, there's no way, and I've told this story so many times, but when the church first started, we had the discussion groups. Ours was small. Y'all's was probably bigger, but we had the same group of people, basically 10 people coming to our discussion group, and it just, it didn't take long. And I genuinely felt like I love these people deeply in the room. I just remember thinking that one time before we started, like, I love these people. My heart had been knit to them. I and mean, I'm listening to them talk about whatever they're praying for. We're praying with them along with them. They're, they're struggling for whatever it is. And you are just knit in love to these people. But if you are not involved with the, with, with the people of God, you, you're just not going to be knit together in love. Just a quick, like, how are you doing at church? And then gone. Like, that's not going to be possible. So the church is such a gift. And we want to, as much as we can, fold our life into it. And we, it will happen. You will, be, you will find yourself, and I love these people, we need each other. Let me just mention a story. Mark Dever told a story of a number of years ago. This guy who had he'd been visiting his, the church a little bit, but he didn't want to be really committed to the church. And he made that clear to, to the pastor. He said, I, just, I don't want to get committed. And Mark Dever said, well, why, why not? And he, this, is, this is the guy's words. Now, you can tell he's not thinking exactly the right way. He said, I, it would just it'd slow me down. That's what he told Mark Dever. He said, it just slow me down. You know, I'm, I'm burning the tracks up spiritually. If I got connected to a church, everybody would kind of slow me down. There'd be all kinds of different things to deal with. And, and so Mark Dever didn't contradict him. He just kind of played along. He goes, okay, maybe it would slow you down. But maybe other people need you to come along so you can speed them up. And like, maybe there's more going on here than just your personal thoughts about your own needs. And so he, he was obviously thinking in only in a self-centered way about the local church, which is like... We think about it like it's going to a store or something. It's like, okay, like this store meets my needs better than this store. So I'll go here when I want and there when I want. No, no, no. The church is about, it's a family. It's not about mainly my needs getting met. It's about all of us meeting each other's needs. And that can only happen in a committed, close-knit community. It can't happen when I go to this church this Sunday and that church the next Sunday and this other church the next Sunday because I like the preaching here and I like the music here and I like the children's ministry here and I just hop around, which is what I did in college. So I know what that's like. I did that, which was wrong and I regret that. But there's no sense of intimacy connection. There's no sense of, no one really knows your struggles. You don't know their struggles. There's no, nothing is really being built that's lasting. And so, um, yeah, it may, it may slow you down, but uh, it, you, you can help speed some other people up. Greg? Um, moving into verse, verse three, he talks about in Christ or is Christ, these, the um, knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He keeps coming back to Jesus. 
I mean, you saw in verse 28, I mean, the heart of Paul's proclamation was Christ. Is that him we proclaim. Okay, so every bit of teaching and warning is always done in light of Christ. Everything we do that when we come together to build each other up, to hold each other accountable, to love each other, to encourage, whatever, Christ has to be the foundation of that. I mean, that's clearly what Paul is saying here. That, you know, coming back to that theme of the sufficiency of Christ, everything we need to encourage one another, to build each other up, to withstand false teaching, which is, he starts to mention that in verse four, everything we need to, to thrive as a congregation is in Christ. God has provided that in Christ and in the gospel for us. Um, that's why we think about, you know, Christ, the gospel, the whole counsel of God. That's what God has given us so that we can stay faithful to him. Because verse four, he says very clearly, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. People are going to come in and try again to point us away from Christ, to, to, to say, no, something you need, Christ can't give you. You need to go over here. You need to listen to this teaching. And Paul keeps bringing it back. What, what saves us, what keeps us, what sanctifies us, what is the fuel for everything we do together is Christ himself. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in him. Every bit of wisdom we need to live in this world, we have in Christ. Every bit of knowledge, the, the perspective that we need to, to think rightly, to choose rightly, God has given that to us in Christ. And again, that knowledge and that wisdom is spread throughout the body. It's again, it's not something that we do in isolation. God imparts that. He makes us wise. He gives us this knowledge as we come together and talk about Jesus and keep him central. Mark. Yeah, we're almost uh, out of time here, but look at verse four. <clears throat> I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Apparently, the words good order and firmness were military words for kind of being ready, to, ready for battle. But verse four, that's what I want to focus in on for a second. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. False teaching can sound very attractive. Listen, here's what makes so much false teaching attractive. It appeals to our flesh. Our flesh wants what is wrong. It has a craving for what is wrong. So when a teaching says that something in your flesh is good or should be glutted or followed or whatever, indulged, then we, we have a natural bias towards it because it usually justifies sin. Like you mentioned the prosperity theology, which is easy. Of course, I want to be comfortable if you can give me a theology that says God always wants me to be comfortable, that sounds great to me. I mean, the arguments may not work, but it sounds good. I like that. So we, we have to be so careful. Let, let's be so careful of teachings that sound, first of all, suspicious, don't seem to match with Scripture, and really appeal to our natural self. That's when you better wake up and go, something doesn't... Whenever it's first talking about your internal desires being good and living those things out no matter what, that kind of stuff feels great to our flesh. That is a toxic thing that will, that will, that will leave destruction really in, in its wake. No follow in our heart, huh? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> that's right. Yep. That's a blow right there. <laughs> so we have uh, next week, will we be able to get into what some of these arguments were? Yes. Right. Do, will, yes. will you introduce that to us next week? Is that probably the plan? Uh, yes. We will we'll begin. The next two weeks, we'll especially be talking about the false teaching more. That's yeah, chapter two. the false two. teaching more. Good. Greg, can you uh, pray for us? And then we will 
um, get to um, talk about these things at the tables. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much uh, for your word. Uh, Lord, how clear it is, how helpful it is. Um, And Lord, I I thank you, God, for a church that, Lord, is in so many ways modeling, Lord, uh, what this passage is pushing us to. And I pray, God, that we would only continue um, to do what we're doing and to grow in it and to improve in it um, and to be sanctified in it and refined in it, Lord, that more and more we would reflect Christ in our gatherings and our conversations and our prayers and our fellowship in every aspect of who we are. Uh, so, Lord, right now we pray that you will just have your hand upon our table discussions. Lord, help us uh, encourage one another Um, through what we say, continue to give wisdom and knowledge uh, in Christ, Lord, as we discuss these things together. uh, And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.